0: You know, I have worked in two corporations which are very long-living. And it struck me during my career in Unilever and in Tata, each of which is 150 years old, that what makes them so long-living? And uh, I got interested in the subject of long-life companies. And I stumbled upon uh, a very interesting book called The Living Company. It is by a guy called mm-hmm. Ari Goose, And he's written it from a European perspective. And then I found an American perspective in this book, Centuries of Success. And I then looked for Japanese and I found this book. So my library has three books, Japanese, American and European. And of course, I had my own experience with two long living companies. And I put all this together in my research and found that they say the same thing in different ways. You know, it's like you can go from Iceland to New Zealand Maoris and ask what are the secret of good health. They will tell you about the same thing. Eat well, Mm -hmm. sleep well, don't have excessive habits, etc., etc. And that's what got me interested in the subject of uh, long life companies. Now, the Japanese call it shinise. These people call it the living company. In India, we call it Ayurveda, the science of long life, Mm -hmm. which is the reason why our book has a subtitle, Discovering corporate ayurveda
1: today is a very very special show extremely special because of the guests that i have the startup ecosystem you would have noticed that you know it has been growing exponentially for a while now and chances are that either you are working for one or you are thinking of one or maybe you know somebody who's working for one those kind of things you can't be very far away from the startup ecosystem so and and most startups are not about a lot of money these days there are smaller startups there are uh, even one person startups very small two three people startups and of course the ones backed by larger companies the subject is mushrooming there is a lot of new knowledge which is emerging and but one thing is common you know i've noticed when i speak to people uh, that in the last few years these startups have always wanted to learn from the grown ups the knowledge that grown ups can bring because of the decades sometimes of experience is unparalleled and startups are now realizing that uh, that knowledge is cannot be earned in, in an MBA or a business school or through meeting people. There is a certain organic nature to that knowledge. So today I'll bring you two such guests and I'll get to those guests in a bit. But before that, I'm Anshuman, your host on the show Manage Better. If you like what I do and want to stay in touch and get alerts on the show and, you know, related archives, follow me on LinkedIn and now also on Twitter and Instagram and uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel so that you can get all the archives and new show alerts. So with that little bit of a marketing plug, uh, I will bring in the guests one by one. So the first uh, one I'll bring quickly in a minute is R. Gopalakrishnan. Gopal to everybody that knows him and he's been ex vice chairperson of Hindustan Lever and then for many years executive director at Tata Sons extremely popular author and consultant today and speaks on a wide variety of topics, very revered in the industry. Uh, and I, I can, I'm almost pinching myself at having been able to get him for the show, but Gopal Sir studies, studied physics in, at Kolkata university and then engineering at IIT Kharapur and attended the advanced management program at Harvard. Uh, he's been a professional manager since 1967 and people like him don't retire. He also serves as an independent director on several listed companies. And he's now a consultant and mentor to startups. He's actively engaged in both instructional and inspirational speaking, and has authored in the last few years, 20 books. It is almost like outpouring of all the knowledge and experience into books. Namaste. Welcome to the show. I'll quickly bring in Narayan and sir now and introduce him. Sir, namaste. Narayan and sir has been on both sides of the startup ecosystem. So that's one of the reasons he's there. The main reason is of course this. Uh, Book that both have written together. He's had a long stint in the corporate world uh, before building two startups of his own. So he's been in, from IM Calcutta, worked for leading companies such as Coca Cola, Nestle, and he then built a strong confectionery brand as, a, as his own startup, right? So, and later on, a food processing company as well. Currently, he runs Net 10 Digital and also is very, very active in the investment uh, space. He's part of the Chennai Angels and is focused on consumer facing startups, both have written this fantastic book together. So this is a little bit of a plug for the book, but if you haven't read this book and are interested in the startup ecosystem, you're missing something. So I would strongly recommend I've read in the last couple of weeks and found it extremely fascinating. And that is one of the reasons why I decided that this should be a show that we should be doing together. So you don't, you won't find two better people to learn from in this space. And so once again, welcome to the show, we will quickly get into the questions. And so one quick reminder that we will try and cover the why and what of the startup and wisdom for startups thing. This is not a show about the how, this is not going to teach you how to pitch your deck to an investor. This is not going to tell you the how of how to run. That's not the point. The why and the what is more important. In fact, the why is even more important than anything else. And that's the space that this channel operates in. That's the space that our guests also are experts on. And that's the space that we will look at. And uh, some people already on the chat are asking about the book. So Sachin, Sunil and others, the book is called wisdom for Startups from grownups. And if this is there written by Kupa. So do check out, I'll post the link cell later, but more about the book later. Let's get into the show as such. Okay. So the like i said we will get more into the the why and what so maybe gopal sir first with you starting with you the your book you know that you have co-authored as is, is talks about the you know taking inspiration from the japanese concept of Shinize, where japanese companies dating back to centuries ago are still thriving and, you know, not just surviving, doing really well. What can startups today learn from century old companies? And of course there are companies in other parts of the world also, particularly North Europe and all, which have lasted many centuries, but this Japanese concept. so the book actually starts with the Japanese concept of Shinizei, which uh, talks about multi, you know, companies lasting for multiple centuries and doing really well, what do you think, you know. Today, startups can learn from
2: from century-old company. I would say there are enough. There is enough literature around for them to learn from existing companies. We so don't have to go back centuries. There is enough to learn from contemporary companies. I don't think that is necessary to go back centuries. Just as a matter of interest, one might like to go back and see. And certain basic human qualities don't change: persistence, devotion to what you're doing. These are factors that remain unchanged. And the leadership qualities, which is a necessity for leading a company into a successful zone, is something that was needed several centuries ago and continues to be needed.
0: Your question was about Shini and do startups really have something to learn from grown-ups? You know, I have worked in two corporations which are very long-living. And it struck me during my career in Unilever and in Tata, each of which is 150 years old, that what makes them so long-living? And uh, I got interested in the subject of long-life companies. And I stumbled upon uh, a very interesting book called The Living Company. It is by a guy called mm-hmm. Ari Goose, And he's written it from a European perspective. And then I found an American perspective in this book, Centuries of Success. And I then looked for Japanese. And I found this book. So my library has three books, Japanese, American And European. And of course, I had my own experience with two long-living companies. And I put all this together in my research. And found that they say the same thing in different ways. You know, it's like you can go from Iceland to New Zealand Maoris and ask what are the secret of good health. They will tell you about the same thing. Eat well, Mm -hmm. sleep well, don't have excessive habits, etc., etc. And that's what got me interested in the subject of... uh, long life companies. Now, the Japanese call it shinise. These people call it the living company. In India, we call it Ayurveda, the science of long life, Hmm. which is the reason why our book has a subtitle, Discovering Corporate Ayurveda. And I, my brother and I, by the way, we are brothers, both of us authors. And uh, while we discuss many family matters when we meet at weddings and so on, we got very interested in this subject. Of what makes companies long life and through a rather serendipitous route we got to this book and we came from the belief strong belief since both of us have had exposure but in a different proportion to working in large corporations and working with small companies startups narayan has more startup experience than large company and mine is the other way around so we were sort of matching and filling up our gaps That startups are like children, babies in the house. And whenever you have an addition in the family, the grandmother will say, she will bless him for long life, him or her for long life. And startups are not very different. And how can we try to distill the wisdom that is published, that comes out of our experience and our observations. And that's how we got to this book. Shinise is just the way the flap describes it, but you could as well call it corporate ayurveda which of course you have touched upon also in the book
1: and, and and it's quite beautifully connected also in the book that uh, like you yourself said sir that you know all these uh, different parts of the world stumble upon the same wisdom from slightly different roots but ultimately it is probably the same wisdom and makes the same sense in other parts of the world i will bring in Narayan for the next question which is which is a very popular question when i did while doing my research for the show I spoke to a few friends and you know colleagues that look you've been talking about this idea of yours you wanted to start up and so on but we also discussed quite a few ideas where people fell in love with the idea that they had and nine out of ten it did not work out right so the question is more around a lot of people want to start up they think that they have a winning idea and they fall in love with it what can the grown-ups teach these ones starting up that about evaluating the idea for feasibility and this is in the context that people do fall in love with the idea that they have which necessarily may not be feasible
2: well i'd first like to start with the falling in love part i think i think it's a very good thing if they fall in love with the idea they should not fall in love with the idea at the exclusion of listening to anything else but they should be in love with the idea because you need to be driven by that passion for your idea and it should uh, complete envelop you. It should dictate your lifestyle. It should dictate your life. And that's a good thing. So I'm personally not at all averse to the idea of a guy thinking that he has a winning idea. And if he's in love with his idea, having said that, I want to go up to the uh, part where we talk about evaluating an idea, your own idea for feasibility. And I think if you talk about your idea long, often enough, you will get enough criticism and give you enough direction to evaluate your idea. The issue is your ability to listen to what people say about your idea, and then to be able to see what correct course correction you can do. And this need not be a major course correct. So pretty much my view is that if a person wants to start up, it's a great asset to be absolutely in love with his idea and to make it a winning idea. If he's a good listener, it will help even more. He should talk about it. He should constantly talk about it and see what inputs he can get to make sure that he is on course.
0: Yeah, um, Narayan has said what I would have said myself, but I'll just say it in a different way. Since we talked started with the Japanese word shinese, I'll bring a second Japanese word, Minohoda. Minohoda says it is not enough to have a great idea. You must also have a good understanding of your limitations. It's like you cannot just look at the credit side of the balance sheet. You must look at the debit side also. And the way you balance your passion, which is on the credit side, is by listening, by modifying, by keeping open to ideas. And that's coming out of Minohoda. So, I think the balance between the two is what is important. un Uncontrolled passion for a startup idea and great self-belief are virtues, but not by themselves. They have to be balanced.
1: Thanks for that. The people I spoke to had reached this conclusion, but after a slightly expensive journey, so to say. So, having... And that leads me to the next question that I have, which is raising money. So, using your own money and investing... One's own money is often the biggest dilemma for a startup, right? So once you have the idea and and we already discussed that the idea is now germinated, whether you had passion for it or no, you had love or no, you have put in some effort, now it is taking up um, shape. Now is the time to put your own money or more of your own money or raise capital. And this is often a dilemma because obviously when you raise capital, you give up control or are likely to give up control. So. As an investor or as, as somebody who's in this space, what is your view here You know, in terms of any studies or any anything that you know organically over uh, using your own money and or raising money? You know, while
0: I understand the desire for control, it's a human nature I, and I don't sort of frown upon it. Reduction of control is not something new that's happening today. I want you to recall in case you knew it. And if you didn't know it, I would like to inform you that at the time, just before liberalization, so the late 80s, 35 years ago, the shareholding of Tata Sons in Tata Steel was under 2%. And Mm -hmm. the shareholding of Birla, that time Aditya Birla was alive, was more than 2%. And Aditya Birla met Ratan Tata and he said, listen, I have more shareholding than you, but I will always vote with you because this is a Tata company. So I'm mentioning this to say that this reduction of shareholding was, is not something that is new that is started just now. Because of the MRTP Act back in 1972, even Tata's have been through it. Now, the key question that an entrepreneur has to understand is that there are a number of assets that he or she needs to assemble. It's like a jig, And one of those assets is a great idea. Another one is hard work, perseverance, ability to raise funds, pitching, all that stuff which everybody knows and I don't need to repeat and (laughs) talk a lot more about it. But I think when the ideas are well developed, the funding can come easier. So when people want to get funding as a priority and their ideas are not well developed, some of them get it, by the way. (laughs) There are many people. I mean, the fact that five unicorns get added every month or something like that makes you wonder whether all these five are ones with great ideas. That time will tell. It's not for me to judge or you to judge on the show. But generally speaking, there's a correlation, exceptions apart. There's a correlation between developing the ideas of your business, your business model, your sustainability, your pitch. And I think the capital availability to entrepreneurs nowadays, if you compare, Naru can talk about this compared to 35, 40 years ago, is dramatically different. I mean, if you're a young guy of 25, as Naru was 30, 40 years ago, even to raise a small sum of money would be impossible. Whereas, and he can talk to you about it. Whereas today is much easier with venture funds, with family trusts and so on and so forth. Naru can add to this. Yes, it is an issue. But I think it's a much lesser issue compared to 40 years
2: ago. No. Yeah, well, I, I must make a correction. It was 50 years ago when I was 25. The, I think the act of raising money is the first act of humility that an entrepreneur can show. He is trying to take his money out into the public uh, viewing and he is trying to raise money from people who are investors and the maximum feedback that he gets is from the guy who puts in the money. So I think that the act of raising money from others is an act of humility where you are acknowledging in a very indirect fashion, that you're not claiming to be perfect and you're seeking advice. And I certainly, when I've been in business, I've approached it the same way. I differentiate that from specific acts of raising money what does that mean so you raise money under several circumstances one is to raise money for the organization etc. this is an act of humility you are saying in advance that you're willing to share the success out of this and that anybody who invests in your firm has shown that they believe in the idea and uh, you're willing to share but as you go along there are certain circumstances change and there are different conditions under which you uh, you raise money and one of those is when you're in trouble which happens to most entrepreneurs because many entrepreneurs if not all entrepreneurs tend to overstretch when you are in trouble then a little bit of fact gets mixed up with a little bit more of fiction, mm-hmm. and yeah. you are now selling and when you're selling the act of selling is so sophisticated that you have to make sure that the other person buys in. In the process, you tend to stray a little bit beyond the reality. So the way I look at it, I think that an entrepreneur should be in love with his idea. He should, the more he's in love with his idea, the better off he is because it will reflect in some manner or the other when he's talking and he should invest maximum
1: time in broadcasting that to the maximum number of people so thank you sir i think both very very important points come in that you know the while this this dilemma of money and your money raising money all this is there the the real deal is your idea and i like this this concept of asking for money is actually the ultimate act of humility on the part of the entrepreneur which is i think very very ably put and this is the kind of wisdom from grown-ups that we would expect. I I want to add a little
0: idea, cap up this particular subject, which is what starts as your idea, one man or two man or three people idea, and what starts as their passion gradually becomes not their money, but our money, and therefore has to become our passion Mm. and our idea. And nothing is worse than an entrepreneur who cannot make that transition from being My idea, my company, my control to our idea, our ability to run it, our control. And that is why in large companies, there are so much written about minority shareholders, their rights, and so on. It is no more your company. So if your shareholding is down to 35%, you may have management control of a company, but it is still our company because there is somebody else owning 65%. And that's where this act of humility. The NARU refers to, it's not only for uh, startups, it's for great grown-ups. You, you, can't, you can't run away from that. Tata Steel today, Tata Sons probably owns, uh, I don't know, the latest number, but maybe 35-40%. But they're always having to be conscious, and they are luckily conscious, that before they take a decision, they have to think of the others also. Nobody in Tata Steel will say, this is my company. They'll say, this is our company.
1: And which, which is a very fair point, because if you look at all successful, long lasting and, and, you know, the Infosys chairman once said that the real test of a company is to last 100 years, because right. obviously if you lasted, you would have succeeded. Right. You won't last if you haven't succeeded. So that also stretches the point and And sometimes that's the test of an idea that can it can it go that distance. So thank, thanks, sir. Uh, quick reminder for we are almost at half an hour of the show. So this is a reminder that your questions can start coming in. Very soon we'll start getting into your live questions. I will be curating the questions. So if you're nice to me, I will put your question. <laughs> right. With that, moving to the next uh, section. As I was reading the book, you know, there is another very interesting chapter. Companies are like human beings, and and while it has a very nice poetic kind of a ring that you know companies are like human beings. But it's quite unconventional wisdom because any student of management will remember Solomon versus Solomon was the first case where the the, the courts decided that a company is not a person, it is an entity. But this so there, this flies in the face of that Solomon versus Solomon and says that, you know, this is unconventional wisdom. So how are companies which we normally consider inanimate more like human beings? Any thoughts?
0: You know, there are objective views of a company. And there are subjective views of a company. And we choose whichever suits us, depending on the point you're arguing. So Solomon versus Solomon is an objective view because a court has to be objective in deciding whatever the subject in front of them. And they may take a view that this is uh, an entity and it is not a human being. They may take the same view for a family trust, saying this is an entity and not a human being. But ask the family members whether they can distance themselves from the trust and you start to see a different answer. So, the human mind is capable of acting rationally of company as an entity and emotionally as a human being. At the end of the day, what is a company? It is a Samaj. It is a society. It's a group of people who are, ideally speaking, fired by the same goal passion and they want to achieve the same things that's what a good company is all about right. and therefore and what does a startup founder feel about his company i remember when i love quoting this as you know tata airlines was born in 1932 and in 1978 it was nationalized and jrd was removed as the chairman And he happened to be in Jamshedpur on that particular evening. And somebody said, sir, if you don't mind my asking you, how does it feel that first they nationalized it and now they've taken you out as a chairman? He said, well, what do you expect me to say? I feel like somebody's taken my child away. While he was very emotionally close to Air India, that emotion describes how a founder feels about his company. It is like your son or daughter. And just like you have Bidai in a wedding, when father hands over his daughter, people... Take an IPO and yes, there's lots of money and uh, pink papers will report it. But there is a sense of bidai also. So there are too many similarities. And I think great companies are ones where you treat it as a human being and not as an entity. For the purpose of the law, you may argue it's an entity. For excise duty, sales tax, income tax, whatever, fundamental rights and so on and so forth. So that's the reason why we had a whole chapter that uh, we felt that if you're talking about a company of human beings, then treat it like a human being.
2: Yeah, I think a little bit of the uh, entrepreneurial spirit needs to be spread out across the company. Not everybody immediately inculcates this or uh, absorbs this. And during the early stages, the entrepreneur would usually try and propagate this to others within the company that all voices should be heard and we should learn to analyze these, the voices, et cetera. We should be committed to our task, et cetera. In several ways, I think the entrepreneur has to do a lot to create a culture in the organization where the uh, people in the organization listen. So I would say that the company and the entrepreneur over a period of time forge a clear personality of their own. And to that extent, if the entrepreneur were to be missing tomorrow, the personality would alter. But this we know, even in professionally managed companies, the chief executive, when he changes hands, a little bit of alteration in the culture of the company begins to step in. So I see no difference between that and what happens in an entrepreneurial setup.
1: If I join the two answers, you know, it, it kind of makes it even more clear, and I hope the audience is getting this, that... The, the concept of a company or a, or a startup or a, or a grown-up startup as a human being is neither new nor unique. It is an observation that the two authors had. And, you know, if you read the chapter also, there are more examples on this. And this is by no way suggesting that, you know, we get away from the legalities of being a company, of course, Solomon versus Solomon will stay till companies are around. So I spoke to a few friends who have gone the startup way and, and Some are a little doing okay. Some are not so much. So that's a mix. Mm -hmm. And one area which we explored, which we discovered is that one more dilemma, like the raising money versus your own money was that hiring people, you know, or you have worked with or hiring the best talent, both have their advantages as a grown-up, How do you see this dilemma? What would be your advice about people? The dilemma is that, you know, hiring people I know or I have worked with, or hiring the best that uh, best available talent? Well,
2: the first thing over here is when you go around and try to hire people whom you know, don't forget that the people whom you are trying to, the, these people also know you. Hmm. So there is an act of selling involved over here, where you're saying there is Narayanan the entrepreneur and there is Narayanan the friend. And you know me as a friend, And these are my qualities as an entrepreneur. And obviously, you're trying to put up those qualities, which are less visible, but which you think are more important. And because you're an entrepreneur, and anyway, all of us are using the art of selling in virtually everything that we do, and you're doing that. The problem comes after you have uttered these words, and the person actually joins, and he works with you in close proximity, and your ability to live up to what you had projected then. This is a difficult part. The reason for this I have found is that when you are selling a job to somebody, certain parts of your personality come to the fore. And when you're running the company, your certain other parts of your personality come to the fore. And not always is it prudent for you to project the latter in a situation where you're still at the former stage.
0: I, I just wanted to add, Na, Naru has commented from a perspective of people whom you know, you don't know, uh, Naru the entrepreneur, Naru the, the, the person, and, and so on and so forth. And we all have multiple avatars, like Vishnu's Dasavatar, Gopal, the husband is different from Gopal, the entrepreneur, the manager, etc. But we talked of the entrepreneur's passion. And I want to point out something which is maybe unusual, but it's not controversial. I think people will say, yes, I think you have a good point. As much as entrepreneur is in love with his ideas, and we call that passion, and we've talked about mm-hmm. it already. Yeah. He must be in love with building talent. Mm-hmm. I have rarely seen, I have rarely seen, and I haven't seen enough, so I'm not going to put percentages, entrepreneurs as passionate about acquiring a team. Now, what do I mean by a team? A team means you have talent density, depth of talent, you have talent portability. You know, you can't you're not a large you're not a tata steel that you can have company secretary deputy head of legal legal you know people must be mm. double hatting so you have talent portability and you have clearly delegated authorities and mm. you have accountability there are four things about talent and people have not micronized this point about people and talent in a systemic way which large companies have large companies when they say people power people management etc good companies will have talent density, which they do through good recruitment practices, good interviewing practices and so on. They will have talent portability, which is the reason why you're a sales manager here, you're a brand manager tomorrow, you're a production manager the third day. You have uh, clearly laid out tasks and you have accountability. Now, a startup won't get there on day one. This is too much for a startup to do on day one. But he must have the passion to do this in year three or year five. And if they did that, then I think both the passions will come together. The passion for their own idea and the passion for the sadhana with which that idea is to be fructified. And of course, the third last passion, the passion for money, (laughs) makes it a complete... Money meaning not for himself, but money for the company.
1: This is the pretty much the last question that I had from my researches and and to both of you. Your, Your book kind of ends with these... Secret sauce of success. I thought I'll ask you for so that the audience can get from you your perspective on the secret sauce.
0: You know, very often this question is asked, and while it sounds very difficult to achieve it, just like if you tell your 18 or 20 year old son, "Beta, you must be thoughtful, you must get good marks in studies, you must work hard, you must," he says, "This is too complicated, you know," and then he he learns his own journey. I like to give a formula, though life cannot be formulaic, which is reducing to the acronym P-I-A-C. This is the secret sauce. Okay, it's like the Gayatri Mantra. Now, if I whisper the Gayatri Mantra, all good Brahmins know that it's whispered into the ear because it's not supposed to be in the public domain. But I want to give the Gayatri Mantra in the public domain as P-I-A-C-Namaha. B hmm. stands hmm. for purpose. What is your company all about? I stands for identity. Why should anybody do business with you? Why should they trust you? A stands for adaptability. Are you capable of changing as your journey goes on? And the last C stands for conservative in finance in particular. You're not a great borrower. You're always worried about how you'll return the money. These are very difficult to balance. P-I-A-C. Just like it's very difficult to follow the principle of the Brahma. If anybody Mm. reads, on the one hand, it looks pretty straightforward. But to actually practice it is not easy. Or even Pranayam for that matter. So... What looks simple is usually very complex. And PIAC makes it look simple, but it's actually very complex. Purpose, identity, adaptability, and conservative. But if you read the pink papers, they give you the impression that this is all about money-making. And they don't intend to misguide you, but they may inadvertently misguide you. And I think I would like this balance to be the message to be taken How do I build PIAC into my company, which I'm not running for three years to become a unicorn. I'm running for 30 years because it's going to be a great contributor to society.
2: I'd just like to add one word over here that the the difference between a startup at startup stage and the startup 10 years later, 10 years later, the startup's personality has formed. There are several people in the organization who have uh, acquired a personality of their own and have lent some of their personality to the organization and the organization has adapted itself around them. So the organization develops a distinct personality of its own. You can't run a startup the same way in year one and in year 10. In year one, you're at a development stage. You're in an early stage. You have less time in your hand for counseling and Every decision of yours needs to be swiftly and quickly implemented because you are on several fronts or multiple fronts, you're facing shortages, money shortage, talent shortage, managerial time shortage, etc. So, given that, I think there is an alteration that is taking place in the life of, a, of an organization as you go along. And your ability to manage that is through recruitment and ensuring that your organization has a personality that is conducive and encouraging
0: i think i think that's a very good way to put it you know i mean when your child is 5 years old the child is quite different from when the child is 15 years old and that's also different from when the child is 30 now if you are the 30 year old father of a 5 year old child you're a grown-up, you're telling the startup, but your father is 60, and he's telling you how you should be when you're 60. And this is the this is the confusion through which life evolves. Karl Chakra, and when the five-year-old baby becomes 30, he says, you know, maybe dad had a few good points. But when he's 60, he says, Dad wasn't so stupid after all. <laughs> you know, he used to tell me this many years ago. And this happens in companies as well. And that's another reason why. I regard companies to be human.
1: I think this is almost like you know some kind of a celestine uh, thing because this morning at six a.m. I was having a conversation with my almost twenty-year-old son, and he actually said that you know some of the things that you were saying today didn't mean anything five years ago, but I'm getting it now. And I left it at that because he's in the process of getting it. I shouldn't right. bother with that process. Right. But it's, you know, it's quite coincidence uh, that. <laughs> We discuss the same topic live as well. But uh, usually that's not the case,
2: especially in the first uh, 10 years of a startup. Usually the case is that you are facing new circumstances and conditions and the uh, startup has to cope with it. And often calls for leadership once again from the original promoter often to show them the way. And this happens a lot in the first 10 years. I don't mean something so that 10 years is very finite. It happens in, tra- in various stages. And uh, I think that the promoter's ability to take risks qualitatively in allowing another person's decision to go through will go a long way in determining how quickly this organization attains maturity. You know, without getting philosophical
0: about it, all of us are parents, Right. Your son is 20, our son is 50, 40. And so, you know, we've seen different phases of our children. When do you give up control on your child? Never. What right do you have to control your child? So Khalil Gibran said this in his poem. He yeah. said, be grateful for parenthood. But remember, you're merely a vehicle through which that being has come into the world. And therefore, you can quote unquote, control your child till 5, 7, 10, if you're lucky. <laughs> Certainly soon after that, that child begins to express its own views. And by the time the child is 20 or thereabouts, you have virtually said, whatever I could do, I've done. I've done right things. I've done wrong things. Now this child is on it. And it's exactly the same. One more reason why enterprise is like a human being. And anybody who wants to control his child for a much longer period, his child being the enterprise is yeah. got a problem, especially if he's taken public money so no. i think uh, you have to understand that you have brought that child into the world in this case an enterprise for that child to grow up and become an adult who's independent
1: Fantastic. and
0: so you have to give it up
1: i'm so glad you brought in Khalil. he does say that you know you are the medium medium uh, exactly yeah. exactly it's the first That's time why in i America. like
0: i like i like startup founders who say i did a startup and i nurtured it for five years eight years i succeeded in some i failed in something Then I made a second startup because it's like saying I had a second child (laughs) and I had a third child. And then you people with three children are equally possessive about all the three children, but they give up control much more easily than an only child.
1: There is one more question. uh, Very interesting. It has been voted up. uh, So I will definitely bring it in. Ravi, uh, startup seems to be for young people. What is your advice for people who become founders when they are past 16? I take the broad spirit of the question is that As you
2: get older, is it more difficult to run a startup? And should you bring in a younger man as early as possible? So a lot depends on the kind of organization, that uh, kind of business that you're in. But broadly, I would say that it is a good idea to be constantly, especially if you're already at the age of 55 or 60, to be constantly looking at who is going to be a successor. And that successor need not be exactly like you. That Hmm. is the key thing to remember. And my own experience of uh, startup and I have plenty of startups in whom I either invested or who I rubbed shoulders with. And the biggest problem is that successful and charismatic entrepreneurs start looking for people who are exactly like them. And that doesn't necessarily work. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily work.
0: I would like to respond by saying just take out the word startup and put marriage there. Now read his question. Marriage seems to be for young people. What is your advice for people who become, who marry when they are past 60? I think the answers are self-evident. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with getting married after you're 60, by the way. But it's a very different experience from getting married when you're 30. So I think the rules are the same. I don't think there's need to philosophize about it.
1: There's one specific question that should not be a surprise to both of you. is around the astronomical evaluations that some companies are recently getting. So who is to say that
2: a valuation is too high? The market. Ultimate judge is the market. And therefore, I would be reluctant to write off the market as uh, making too much of a mistake. However, individual investors in the market are known to make mistakes and will make mistakes. And collectively, there could be a trend. So you might see a situation where some of these startups, which are being valued today at N-hundred or N-thousand crores come down. But that's what happens in a stock market. So I would say it's a formative stage. Waters are being tested. Companies are zooming up to astronomical, apparently astronomical valuations. And now the company has to run really hard to keep its position there. That might be good for the ecosystem and for the company. And I think at this stage, it's a bit premature to say whether these are too high or too low.
0: I'm a bit uh, cautious in jumping to a conclusion by saying all this is rubbish. The bubble is going to burst. You know, there are people with that view. I'm saying that the way we think of companies and their value, the formula is changing. Hmm. You know, Naru and I grew up at a time when we were taught formally in a management course that the cash flow the sustainable profit and you do a multiply of the EBITDA and you know, you arrive at a value and the proof of that was publicly quoted companies, stock markets and so on and so forth. That is undergoing a change. And when the change is happening, the formula for it is a bit unclear and therefore it is a bit perplexing about that. There is no doubt that doesn't mean whatever is perplexing in life. It doesn't mean it is bad, but doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's good either. I'm not cynical about it, but I may be skeptical about it personally, but that's a personal view.
1: And I think we are up on time, so I'll I'll just take a minute and there's, there are a couple of references to Ashok Food who's wonderfully run Mindtree and then now Happiest Minds as an example of how in in response to the question that was past 60, so both his startups were actually past 60 and both have done really well. It's a wrap. Uh, Once again, thank you to everyone on the audience and to my guests. Till the next show, manage better. Thank you.